Our scripture this morning comes from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. The Israelites, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had died when our kindred died before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and command the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and their livestock. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and by which he showed his holiness. This is the word of the Lord to us. You may be seated. Yeah. Well, good morning, everybody, and a special welcome and good morning to those online. Uh, as Don said, my name is Jeff Cuse, a member here at Bethany, but also a pastor and professor at Seattle Pacific University, and a real gift to be with you this morning. As we continue in our summer series, The Art of the Journey, uh, will you join me in prayer as we ask the Holy Spirit to really soften our hearts to hear what God has in store for us in this passage from Numbers? Let's, let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your living word, where you speak powerfully through us to the generations to bind your truth to our hearts. So this morning, Lord, take your scriptures and bind them to our hearts with hoops that are tighter than steel. Will you make pathways through the hardness of our hearts to pour your living water of grace and mercy and restitution into us? May we become vessels of peace to the world. May we become lights in the darkness. May we become places of hospitality for a hungering world because of your word and because of your perfecting power. So Holy Spirit, work in us this morning as a congregation gathers around in your name. We ask you, Lord, you be in this place. We say all this together. And all God's people said, amen. So this series, Art of the Journey, that we've been going through this summer as a congregation has been focused on the person of Moses. Um, as Pastor Richard took us through last week, the temptation in times of wilderness is to be looking back and to 
maybe look too far in the future and not really be present where we're supposed to be. This week, surprise, um, the, the Israelites are still in the wilderness. Uh, numbers, as a book in Hebrew, the, the term numbers literally means in the wilderness. It is a book of wandering. It is a book of starvation, of confusion, of waiting on God, and of difficulty. Moses, as we're going to continue to hear, is getting towards the end of his career, if you will, the twilight days. And he's coming to the end of what he's going to be doing for the Israelites. He's lost his patience with their grumbling. He is struggling and irritated with the indignancy he's seeing in God's people. And he's frankly at the point of losing his cool where fury becomes the language that he uses as opposed to praise. One of the reasons why Moses is such a rich character for us and why it's important for us to pay attention to Moses as a father of the faith is the simple fact that he's all too human. He is not like some saint painted like by Botticelli with gold gilding floating three feet off the ground ensconced in gorgeous light. He is angry. He is frustrated. Um, he's slow to speak and needs his brother to help him out. Uh, he gets confused and he needs his sister Miriam to give him some help as well. And as we're going to see, pain forms and forges him in some ways good, in some ways not so good ways. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful reflections on pain, suffering, and loss, called The Problem of Pain, said that pain removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. Pain removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. And what we're going to see this morning as we dig into Numbers and look at Moses is the role that pain does as far as removing veils from us stripping down our lives to the point of being seen, and what truth can be planted in the midst of us when we acknowledge pain in our lives. The suffering of the wilderness, as we're going to see, is not a place we should choose. It is chosen for us at particular seasons of our life by God. It is not something that God wants us to suffer. It's not God's desire that people are in pain. But the wilderness wanderings that we see in this particular account is part of what it means to forge this people into seeing God more clearly. Jesus is in the wilderness, not because he wanted a time of suffering or because he's on some Spartan race. Jesus is in the wilderness in the New Testament because God commands him to be there. It's in response to God's calling, and so it is with the people that we find in Numbers, the Israelites. It's a gutting experience, and it's difficult. So as we look at it more deeply, we begin our journey with the Israelites at the very first verse of chapter 20, with loss. We hear in verse 1 that Miriam, Moses' sister, has died. Moses' journey is famous. Whether you watch the Prince of Egypt or whether you hear it told um, around the table at home, this infant born who's floating in the Nile, found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised to power and privilege, who acts out in, against injustice in the streets by killing an Egyptian soldier, a man on the run for murder, who becomes reconciled to his heritage, liberating his people. It's just a great cinematic story, as Charlton Heston, of course, showed us all, and also generations have known. But one of the parts of Moses' story that's so important to understand is the role that family plays in who he is. And at the very first verse, we hear that his sister Miriam has died. Miriam embraces Moses early on in his story as her brother, calling him back to his heritage as a Hebrew. He is not merely the son 
who is in Pharaoh's household. He is a Hebrew, and he has a role. He has a destiny. Miriam is a prophetess. She represents the heart and faith that Moses is, has at the core of his bones, in the very sinews of his body. What he's born into is what Miriam calls him to. In Exodus 15, Moses rejoices what the Lord has done by saying, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And then Miriam chimes in right after him, not with words, not with theology, but with song. She sings aloud and she says, sing to the Lord, for the Lord has triumphed. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Miriam takes who Moses is and lifts him into worship that the people of God are going to find their clearest and most complete self in the context of worshiping their Lord. And this point is central to understanding what's about to follow in the remainder of the chapter. Miriam's call to sing to the Lord is a deep part of Moses' identity. Miriam is a prophetess and calls people to worship over and over and over again throughout Moses' journey. Because it is in worship that the people of God can find out who they are and what they're for. And with her death in verse 1, this call to worship from Miriam's side is quieted with her death. An entire community now has lost her presence and her calling. This is a chapter that begins with loss and grief, the death of a loved one. The death of somebody who represents the identity of a family and of a people and of a calling. When I was in college, my grandfather passed away. Um, I had experienced death in other ways, but it was the first time I had a, a close, close family member who was so central to our family's identity pass away. Uh, my grandfather was, to use a basic term, he was the ringmaster of the circus that was my family. He was the grand gatherer of what would happen. When we would come to his house at Christmas time, we'd knock on the door, and every year he'd fling the door open, not walk, just fling it open, and he would just say, wow, this big expansive voice would fill the room, and people would be entered into the celebration of this season. He was at the head of the table at Thanksgiving. It was his knife. It was his platter that would cut the turkey. He would set the agenda. He would set it all up, and he was the one who brought this family together. When he passed away, and I went to the funeral, and I'm a college student getting out of a car and stepping onto my campus again, it was like everything kind of was starting to move in slow motion. I was all of a sudden acutely aware that this huge part of my life that kind of pulled people together, my, my father, my uncles, my aunt, my you know, extended family, was gone, not coming back. And people were, it was springtime, and people were moving on campus and doing their thing, but, I, but it was like all the colors seemed to dim a bit for me. And that's when grief and, and loss started to come in. And, and I was thinking very acutely at that time, what's going to happen at Thanksgiving when people gather on the table? What's going to happen at Christmas without that big, well, expanse of bringing us together? Well, fast forward decades, and our family has not moved on, but we've moved into what we are. We are a new generation of children. We are a new generation of marriages. New traditions have come up and whatnot. But there's still the loss of my grandfather in the room. There's still the loss in the eyes of my parents, my uncles, my aunt, uh, with the loss of their father. And loss and grief create holes in us. 
They become spaces that can either be filled with new water or there can be dark things that can happen to us. A student of mine recently just emailed me, actually just this weekend as I was working on this sermon, and it's a student who um, went through SPU, she graduated, she stayed in Seattle for a couple years to work, and while she was here, she experienced some really traumatic losses in a relationship she was hoping were going to move towards marriage. And as a result, she relocated to the East Coast and is essentially trying to start her life again. Because moving around the city of Seattle had all the markers of that relationship. You know, going to the park, looking at the Space Needle, looking at these things were all reminders in one way or another of loss and of grieving. And she frankly couldn't take it anymore. It was just too much. How many of us sitting here this morning, listening online, have loss in our lives that has formed us and shaped us? Many of us have. The disappearance of possibility that maybe that one job was going to turn out and it didn't turn out. That loved one that we had who's either passed away or no longer in touch with us anymore. That sense of grieving of our identity because it's now severed from us in a particular way. Loss is a, is a loss of anchoring in our lives, in the world. And as we look at Moses about what's now to occur next as we move into the chapter, is this loss of Miriam, sing to the Lord, this voice is gone for him this anchoring of his identity, and he now is moving into a very different space as we move to the second part of our discussion in verses two through eight, where Moses becomes stuck with the congregation in a need for control. Moses moves from the funeral of Miriam now into and back to his role as leading his people, and he hears again a very well-worn script of complaining and grumbling that the Israelites have been offering throughout Exodus and Numbers. We hear in verses two through five, now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses. Let me pause it for a second. The word congregation that's being used here, and this is an important thing to kind of earmark, is the Hebrew word kahal. And kahal literally means those gathered in worship, the congregation, right? For the Hebrew mindset, to be a human being is to be found in the context of worship with other people. There is no smaller common denominator of being a human being other than being in a congregation. Um, so your identity, your truest identity is not found sitting at work, you know, it's not sitting, you know, running around the lake when you're jogging. The truest identity, the fullest capacity of your identity is right here in this space, worshiping with God together. We're meant to be together with other people, so the kahal is the people, right? And so there's no water for the kahal, the congregation. And then going on, the people quarreled with Moses. What that we would have died with our kindred, died with the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? There's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. By the way, there is pomegranate juice down at PCC right around the corner if you need some after the service. But in this service, they are having a nostalgic moment of their diet they had as slaves. This is a, something that happens over and over throughout their wandering is they go back to a place where things were certain rather than things are based in faith. What was certain? Well, when we were slaves in Egypt, they had this wonderful vegetarian diet. They fed us every day. It was awful being slaves, but we knew exactly where our food came from, and that's better than this. I would rather have control and certainty as a slave 
than I would be following a God who makes me wait. And that's what's all of a sudden happening. This has been going on all throughout Exodus and it's continued all the way throughout Numbers. It's a well-worn script of the people. Here's the thing, on Sinai, God calls these people up, out, and onto the mountaintop. He meets them. These are people without a future, just coming out of slavery, and he forges them through grace, through rescue, through redemption, through liberation for a future of a people to follow God. And he sets them forth. They have a cloud by day. They have a fire by night. They have manna when they need it. They have provision and a God who loves them relentlessly with them, forging them together. But over the years, the people start saying, let's go back to Sinai. <laughs> because the mountaintop is really great. Things happen on the mountaintop that we knew. Cloud by day, fire by night. Let's go back to Egypt because we knew the vegetarian diet and we could stick with that. And that was good. But what God desires now is less of Sinai, less of former slave identity, and more of becoming the people of God because they are not the people of Sinai. They are not just the people who are formerly of Egypt. They are the people of God. And the more that they make a nostalgia play back to these places, they will not be able to make the next step into what God has in store. Sinai was there for a reason. It is a chapter. Egypt's freedom is a chapter, but they are not the book. And this is a chapter that they are now moving into. And the longer they hold on to the past, the longer they strive to capture that past nostalgia and try to bring it into their future, they will never move forward to where God wants them. And this is what's at stake when they're grumbling. One Old Testament scholar put it this way, complaining had become Israel's pattern of life. The complaints... The rabble, intensified by the Israelites, nostalgically looking back on the diet of the Egyptians, crying out for more, was diminishing the fact that God had given earlier gifts that had sustained them and given them strength. This amounts to a rejection of God and a request for Exodus to be reversed altogether. One of the places that is marked at this point is a place called Kiriboth Havatah, which literally means graves of craving. Graves of craving. In their complaining, they're literally digging into the soil and they're making graves for themselves through their complaining. Can you imagine that? Or is that familiar to you? Have you been in a place where the spot that you are, you refuse to move forward and you'd rather just dig down in your complaining to stay where you're at in that way? One of my mentors years ago uh, had a phrase, maybe familiar to some of you, but I need to hear it a lot, <laughs> is this, that God's timing is always perfect, but rarely soon enough for us. God's timing is always perfect, but it's rarely soon enough for us. The patience based on faith that the Israelites are being called to is difficult. And can you relate to that idea? Wanting to get to the next stage of life being in a position where others are in control of your destiny for a promotion or a job, and you can't seem to force it into being. You're looking for a potential partner in this life, and you're tired of being single, and you're wondering, when is this ever going to move forward? You're going to the doctor repeatedly for updates on your health, and you can't seem to get any sense of a clear and definitive, certain answer that's sufficient. In Israel's complaining, we can hear them because we can relate to them. And they are complaining for the right things, but they're doing it in all the wrong ways. Because what God wants to provide for them 
is beyond what they're complaining for right now. And it's going to take patience and faith that God will show up for this to occur. Part of my summer, this, just this month actually, just a couple weeks ago, our family went to Southern California. And during that time, I engaged in one of the most humility-provoking sports imaginable, surfing. Um, uh, my brother-in-law graciously took my family out um, to the San Onofre Beach near San Clemente uh, to learn how to surf, right? And um, let's just say that it's harder than it looks if you've ever done it, okay? You've got this board, you've got this ocean, and you think, oh yeah, this all come together pretty easily. And so I'm out there paddling around, and a wave is coming, and I think, okay, catch the wave, catch the wave. Beach Boy said it, catch the wave, and I'll be surfing, okay? So, so I paddle, paddle, paddle as fast as possible, wave goes by. And I'm trying this over and over again. And I'm looking, and there's these people just bobbing like corks, just sitting there. And I'm seeing perfectly good waves go by, go by, go by. And I'm thinking, you know, why aren't they catching these waves? What's going on? And there's a phrase that servers will tell you over and over is that that's not your wave. <laughs> that was not your wave. You're chasing after something that's not yours. That was not your wave. A lot of surfing is learning how to wait, how to sit, how to watch, how to feel. The waves that are created come from miles away under the ocean. You can't see a ripple on the surface as it's being created. And it's bulging and moving before it hits the shore. And it will take time. And eventually, your wave will come. If you're patient and you wait. But not, surfing isn't all about catching waves, I found out as well. Later on in the summer, as we were driving up the coast, our family was out for an evening walk on another beach. And we were watching these surfers bobbing out in the waves. And they were catching nothing. There were like six of them all sitting out, all their faces pointed out towards the ocean, and wave upon wave is coming. And we're thinking, this is a gorgeous time to be surfing. Why are they catching nothing? And at that moment, as we're sitting there, this row of surfers pointing towards the setting sun, two dolphins shoot out of the water and land on the other side. And we're just all just like amazed. This is actually happening right in front of us. And the surfers were playing with the dolphins. And one surfer caught a wave at one point, and one of the dolphins jumped into his wave and rode with fin down and followed him all the way down as we went. And we're sitting here watching in amazement. This is all unfolding before our eyes. And you come to find out that training for catching waves sometimes means you don't catch a wave at all. Sometimes just being out there is not about the waves. It's because sometimes dolphins will show up. And maybe everything you prepared for is meaningless because that happened at that moment. And part of preparation and waiting for the Israelites is realizing that the things you may think you want are not the things you're going to need to become the people of God, which moves us into Moses' response to the people in verses 9 and 11, when he lets anger turn him away from God's voice. Amidst these cries and in, in seeking for water and sustenance, God responds directly to Moses and Aaron. They go into the tent they ask what to do, and God tells them directly in verses 7 and 8, go out there, lift up the staff, command, speak, speak, and I will provide water for you and for your livestock. Yet in verse 9, Moses moves in a different direction. Where God's call to Moses was to lift up his staff as a gathering point for the congregation. Remember, kahal, the people who worship God, right? As an act of gathering people in worship. Moses takes the gathering point and uses it as a weapon for a crowd of rebels, as he calls them. 
We hear in verse 10, listen, you rebels, shall I, we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. In these verses, God is absent and not even needed, pushed to the side. Moses addresses a crowd, not a congregation. He does not wait for God through a command that God would bring the waters up from the rock, but instead strikes, not once, but twice to the rock, demanding it give forth its goods, and it does. Tired of complaining, Moses just yells at the people, as if they're a rebel crowd before him. And along with Aaron, the staff that moves from being a pointer to what God can do, it becomes what they can do. Let us bring the water forth. Let's do it in our time. In Ephesians 4.26, we hear these words. In your anger, do not sin. Now, it's important at this point to hear this. Nowhere does it say, never get angry. Never does it say, take your anger, bury it as deep down as possible, and never unearth it. All throughout Scripture, in Ephesians, and throughout and demonstrated by Moses, Anger is a part of what it means to be human. We get angry. Humans get angry. It happens. This is a broken world. People disappoint us. Situations don't turn out like we want them to. And we lose our cool. We become angry. The question for Moses in this point, and why God turns his face from Moses as leader at this point, is not about his anger. What is at stake is trust. Can we trust in the Lord? Can we wait upon the Lord to hear us and ultimately have our best future in mind, even if it's a future that we can't ourselves imagine? And two, so two things with that thought. Number one, most of the Old Testament scholars looking at this passage will tell you that the water that appears before them is not supernaturally created. It's not like water never existed and God created water out of nothing. This isn't like a burning bush. This is water coming out of a rock that was literally pounded out of the rock to come at them. And what the scholars see with that is that what happens here is that God has always had water for them. They just couldn't see it. And they were so fast to get at it, they weren't allowing God to do his work to bring it forth in God's way. The water was there from the foundations of the world. And as we're going to see at the end, spoiler alert, the water is still there for us. So that's coming. God also desires for his people to give us wholeness and healing. He wants us to more, do more than surviving and thriving. He wants us to be whole. And we live in a world that's broken, and that's a fact. Their grumbling and complaining is because they're hungry and they're thirsty. God wanted to provide for them, wanted to, and still does. We need to hear this because we live in a time of destitution in areas of our world. We look at the news and we see it. We follow the earthquake in Italy. We hear about the terrors of warfare still in Syria. We follow the floods in the south of people losing homes and having no sense of resources. These areas of destitution are places God also desires to bring healing to. And we as God's people, the kahal, the congregation, should be responsive. Like later as we commission the Rwanda team to go, to be responsive to sending for the healing of the world. Moses is quick to anger, but he's also failing in trust. And it's that last point that's the big one, is the lack of trust in what God will do. Anger is a part of what it means to live in a world of disappointment, to never be frustrated or brokenhearted when we see what's happening in Syria week after week, losing of homes and floods, means that we're deaf to a, to a world that's in pain. Pain 
will raise a flag in the fortress of our hearts, as we hear, right? To tell us what's really happening in the world. But here's the thing about anger that we also need to hear. Anger that is not bent towards reconciliation is not what the Lord desires. Anger that is bent without a call to reconciliation of wholeness is not what the Lord requires. Anger that it was without that becomes fury. It becomes deafened to what God has and deafened to other people. In the 19th century, uh, Scottish explorer and medical missionary uh, David Livingston, who studied in, in Glasgow and then went to Central Africa, uh, he went throughout Africa to search for the source of the Nile River. And the reason why he was searching for the source of the Nile River as an explorer is because he believed he could find the source of the Nile. He could leverage that information for trade, trade routes for the British people and trade that information for the abolishment of slavery. He thought he could literally bring trade as a way to abolish slavery in his time. And so he frantically was searching throughout, trying to find the source of the Nile. And on one of his journeys to the Zambezi, he writes about an encounter of a tribe he had dealing with anger and how they dealt with anger in this way. There seemed to be a way that they were not a warlike race passing through their country. I observed in the middle of their gathering a large stone cairn, a big pile of, of rocks. And our guide gave us this account. Once upon a time, the forefathers in our tribe were fighting with another tribe. And here they halted and they sat down. And after a long consultation, they came to the conclusion that instead of fighting and killing their neighbors, and perhaps even killing themselves, they would be more like men to create rather than destroy. They would raise a heap of stones to their anger and protest what the other tribe has done. And when they accomplished that, they went home quietly. And Livingston talks about how that memorial to anger quieted down the violence that could have happened and allowed them to have a conversation, allowed them to build bridges. There are people who disappoint us in this life. There is anger in us when things don't turn out well. When we experience deep grief and loss, when we lose a loved one and we're angry that they're not there anymore, we can clench our fists and, and darken our hearts at such times. We can feel shame when we're jobless, when we've done things wrong, when we're in debt and living in fear of getting through the next month. Where do we take that anger? Do we create something out of it? Do we find a way to memorialize what we're going through and then step back and allow God to speak to us? Or do we destroy everything in our path because we have no control? As Livingston showed in this encounter with this tribe, perhaps the path that anger should be taking is that which allows us to consider our consequences and create testimonies to what humans need to do before God. God's desire for us in reading Numbers this morning is that we'd be a, be a whole and healthy people. And what it takes for us to be healthy is to deal with our past and our losses in constructive ways and to hear what God has in store. Which brings us to our last part of the passage in verses 12 and 13, when God becomes the God of all of our moments in the midst of all of this. Moses' loss of Miriam is grief. The people's complaining is testimony to need. Moses' response in anger shows our propensity to turn our backs and to silence God because we have gone, we've become so frustrated. And we forget, as Miriam calls us to, to sing aloud to the Lord, to worship first before we start acting. And in the end, we hear that the waters of Meribah are still there flowing. They're still flowing. And that presence 
is something that we need to understand as we get to the end of Moses' legacy, as we get to the movement of Israel here at this point. In Victor Hugo's classic 1862 novel, Le Miserable, it's this wonderful story that many of you probably know, this powerful portrait of 19th century France as it moved towards revolution. What's missed in the musical, and the musical's amazing, um, Anne Hathaway, yep, she got an Oscar for her role, amazing, right? Great musical. Um, is that in the novel, there's almost 100 pages prior to the coming of Jean Valjean that seems unbelievably mundane. It makes sense why the musical and the movies have passed over it, but I want to bring it to you. Is that in the beginning of the novel, we encounter a, just a priest, and this priest is wandering the streets of the cities and of the valleys, and he's encountering poverty and suffering. For years, he sees the brokenness of the French people who are starving and in sorrow and in anger and in disappointment. And those voices hit him and forge him and change him and affect him. As he continues on in his ministry with these people, he is elevated to bishop, a monsignor. And his life is changed by this wilderness wandering that he has through the streets of France for years of his life. As it says in the novel, as to his views on this dogma or that theology, they are mysteries to reveal after death. But we can assert this about this bishop, that he overflowed with love. From the reports of those who knew him in his youth and his early manhood, it seemed that he had been a man of strong passions, even perhaps violence. His universal compassion that he had now was, less, was due less to his natural instinct than a profound conviction, a sum of thoughts over the course of his living, that in the nature of all humans, as in a rock, there are channels being hollowed out by waters that can never be destroyed. Channels being hollowed out by waters that can never be destroyed. His life of being patient, of listening to God, listening to the cries of the people in the streets, listening to the brokenness around him, leads him to a point that famously comes up in the great musical where the prisoner Jean Valjean, a man who has been imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread, is seeking refuge in the bishop's house and rather than accepting the hospitality, steals silver from the man and runs into the street. He's brought back by police who say, this man is stolen from you and should go back to jail. And then one of the great turning points of literature, one of the great moments, one of the great metaphors of literature, the Monsignor, the bishop, this priest that for 100 pages, we've been watching him for decades wandering the wilderness of the sorrows, who has been forged by these waters of, of grace in his life, reaches and hands candlesticks, silver candlesticks, to this prisoner and says, you forgot these. You forgot these. Take these, and with these I buy your freedom. Victor Hugo, in using the candlesticks as the turning point of everything, wanted France to hear two things in that moment. The candlesticks represent light against darkness. To light a candlestick is to say darkness does not win. Light is here, and light needs to be lit again and again and again for it to be real. And secondly, the candlesticks are about the call to hospitality. When you put candlesticks on your table and you light the candlesticks, you are saying, come to the table. You're welcome here. You'll be fed here. These doors are open for you here. And in this moment, these candlesticks are offered, and Jean Valjean's life has changed, and everything shifts to a moment of grace as the rest of the narrative and the musical sing so eloquently. 
As we hear at the end of our passage for today, there are words of judgment that God levies. Moses is coming to the end of his leadership. His loss of Miriam, his anger at the crowd, his unwillingness to follow through with God's asking of a commanding voice and rather using his staff in the way he did. God is saying that he will not enter now into the promised land. And that is a harsh thing to hear. The people are going to continue to move out of the wilderness as the narrative continues. And another generation is going to be led into the land of milk and honey, and it won't be Moses. This is a narrative of a generational shift. Moses' work is completing, and another young generation is going to come into being. And there is a temptation for another generation to hold on to their role, to angrily try to control it, to want it to be theirs. And Moses is making sure that both Moses' legacy is secured, but also a new generation moves forward. Because this is not a story about punishment. It's a story about provision. God is providing something in the waters that are there at the end of the passage. The waters of Mirabah are where they quarreled, but the waters are flowing in the desert today. So let me ask you this as we close our time together and as we continue in worship. And I want you to kind of quiet your hearts as I close and pray for us right now. Are you in a season of loss and disappointment in your life? Is there grief in your life that you're holding on to and not knowing where to take it before God? Are you in a time of uncertainty of not knowing what the next chapter is going to hold and you've been wandering and wandering in the wilderness and getting so tired that you'd rather choose control over faith? Are you dealing with anger about someone or your situation or something that is clenching your fist so tight that you cannot receive candlesticks of grace offered to you to give light in the darkness and give hospitality for those in need? Let me close us now in prayer as we try to unclench our tight fists and to allow God to work in us anew. Gracious God, seal your word into our hearts this morning. May the testimony of Moses' life, both his brokenness and his faithfulness, be convicting to us this day. Open our hands and our hearts to receive your grace this morning, Lord. If we are in this place of shame and brokenness, wash it away with your waters. If we are in times of loss, and we need your comfort. Fill the loss that is the hole in our heart with your living water this morning. And Lord, be with us to calm our anger. Help us to create rather than destroy. And as a congregation, your kohal of people assembled, may we no longer be rebel crowds, but be people committed to your way, we ask in this day. Amen. Let us continue to worship the Lord.